Well, last week we started a new series, The Great Mystery of Ephesians. And, and if, you've been come, if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, you know, we already revealed what that mystery is. And if you've been reading ahead, perhaps you know what the mystery is or if you've studied Ephesians before. But there's this great mystery. And as we talked about last, last week, sometimes that mystery to us, when we hear it, at first, it's kind of disappointing because it's maybe something you've heard before. But on another hand, when we really understand what that mystery is, it should be something that challenges us, that excites us, because we know even though we've heard it, perhaps we're not doing it the way that God had intended. And so today we come to the second sermon in this series, and, and the title is What Jesus Really Came to Do. What Jesus really came to do. That title implies that a lot of people don't have the right understanding of what Jesus came to do. Or they don't have a full understanding of what Jesus came to do. Let me show you this picture of this guy. The guy on the left with the hat. Anybody recognize that guy? Know who he is? Probably not. His name's Robert Reed. And you don't know him. Um, He spent most of his life as a janitor. That was his career. But there was something about this guy people didn't know. When people saw him, they probably saw this old dude when he was older. You know, they saw the janitor. Maybe some people were nice to him, left him Christmas presents here and there, and um, thank you cards. But probably a lot of people did what a lot of people do when they see janitors. They don't see them. They just walk right by them. Well, this guy had a hobby. And his hobby was investing money. So when he died, they found out this guy was worth $8 million on a janitor's salary. Pretty amazing. You look at him and you just think he's a guy. He's just a guy. But no, this guy was doing something. Something more to him. And I think that's true of all of us. But I think it's especially true of Jesus. We say we know Jesus, but I think when we say we know Jesus, all we really know is we know some names for Jesus. Like we might know, oh, he's the Son of God, or we might say he's the Messiah or the Savior or he's Lord. But each one of those titles is packed with so much detail about who Jesus is, so much depth about who Jesus is. There's so much more. And so we think we know Jesus because we know titles. It would be kind of like if I asked one of you um, that's married and I said, do you know your spouse? And you said, yeah, yeah, yeah. What can you tell me about him? Ah, His name is John. What else can you tell me about him? He's my husband. Anything else? Yeah, he has a job, and he works somewhere. That doesn't sound like somebody who really knows John, right? That just sounds like somebody who knows things about John. They know some titles, some descriptors. But do we really know who Jesus is? You see, I have no doubt if I were to ask you, what do you think about Jesus? Most of you would say something like, oh, he's great. Or he's awesome, he's wonderful, he's good. And I think most Christians would say that. 
Because many Christians think Jesus is great, but they don't really know how awesome he is. And I think there's a reason for that, because we're called the body of Christ. As Christians, that very name means little Christ, that we're trying to be like Christ. And you see, the more awesome that we understand Jesus is, the greater call it is on our lives to be like him. So we kind of like to have titles because we can say he's the son of God, and you know what? I can never be the son of God. Not that way. We can say he's the savior, and I can say, you know what? I can never be the savior, so I'm kind of safe. We can say... He's Lord, but I can never be the Lord. And so we, we stay with these titles and we throw out adjectives like great and awesome. But because we don't really know who he is, we feel safe. Because we can still love him and we can still adore him. But we don't have to be like him. Because he's too much more than us. Well, Paul's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. And as we talked about last week, it's his favorite church. He stayed there for three years. You know, you know, it's, I'm sure like if all the churches had got together and they said, Paul, Ephesus is your favorite, right? Paul would have gone, yeah, true. Just like if you've ever had to tell your kids that, you know, which kid is your favorite, um, you're supposed to say, no, none of my kids are my favorite, even though you know there's one, right? Well, Paul, oh, this is his favorite church. He loves them dearly. He spent three years with them. And he's writing this letter, and he's writing from, from prison. He's writing from some form of imprisonment. And he's writing to them because he wants to encourage them. That's what I love about Paul. Paul's never just caught up in his circumstances. He's never sitting around whining about, oh, poor me, I'm chained to this Roman guard. I can't leave, wah, wah, wah. I guess I'll just sit here and play my Game Boy. No. He's like, man, what can I do to advance the gospel sitting here chained to this Roman soldier? Well, you know what one thing I can do? I can start talking to that guy. You know another thing I can do? I can have visitors come. I can talk to them. Another thing I can do? I can write letters. Think about this. Do you think when Paul's sitting there writing this letter that he knew a bunch of weirdly, strangely dressed people on the other side of the world 2,000 years later were going to be reading that letter? No. All he knew was my friends, the ones I love in Ephesus, I need to write to them. I need to tell them some things. I don't know if this is my last day on earth or not. I need to tell them things. And yet here is this guy, this guy who's, he's in, he's in this probably a, an apartment that he had to rent and he's under some form of house arrest and there he is in there and he's not lamenting his situation. He's changing the world for thousands of years. It's just amazing. Just that in of itself should be something that's of value to you. To know that no matter how, how 
limited you think you are, no matter how restricted you think you are, that if your mind is always set on God, how can I, how can I make a difference in this world for you? There's no telling what you can do. Well, what does he want to tell them? He wants to remind them of who they are in Christ. And he's done that. And now he's telling them who Christ really is. He's reminding them. So we pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 1. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Pretty amazing, these words. There's, there's four or five passages in the New Testament that are, that are called these great Christological passages. In, in other words, they tell us in just a very short uh, few verses who Christ is. Jeremy read one of them earlier in Colossians, and this is another one, Ephesians. Just look at what he says there. It's just this Jesus, this person that some of you knew, some of you thought was so great and so awesome. Oh, you don't even know. I love how Paul starts this. Paul's biggest compliment to a church or to Christians was this, that he's heard of their faith. In all of Paul's letters, he says this except one, and that's the church at Corinth. He's not real happy with the church at Corinth when he writes to them. But he says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Then he says, I'm going to pray for you. As a matter of fact, I'm praying for you now and I'm not going to stop praying for you. And he says, I'm going to pray that the Lord give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. If we want to know who Jesus really is, we need his spirit in our lives. You can learn a lot about Jesus. You can learn a lot of facts about Jesus. You know, there's people who aren't even Christians who study Christian theology and probably know more than all of us combined. But they don't really know Jesus. You can't really know Jesus without his spirit. There's something about when we have when we have God's spirit, where God takes the information we have about Jesus and his, his spirit in our lives kind of, kind of does something to it. That information is not just information. Somehow it becomes encoded in our very DNA. It becomes who we are. We know who he is. The information about Jesus 
changes who we are. If, and that's one of the, the things, like, you know, sometimes, you know, we ask, like, how do you know you're a Christian? What is the evidence that you're a Christian? Is it because you have a certificate that says you were baptized? Is it because you can remember a day when you weren't a Christian and then you, you, you prayed to receive Christ and you became a Christian? Is that your evidence? The evidence is much more than that. The evidence is, are you more Christ-like today than you were yesterday, than you were a year ago? Then you were five years ago, 10. Whenever that day was when you, when you trusted in the Lord, when you confessed of your sins and you repented, are you becoming more like Christ every day? That's what his spirit helps us do. You see, when he prays for revelation, when the Bible uses the word revelation, it's talking about things you cannot know on your own. Anytime you see the word revelation, well, I don't want to say anytime, I'm sure there's probably exceptions. 99% of the time when you see revelation in the Bible, it's talking about information you could not come to on your own. It has to be revealed to you. It has to be given to you. And so that's what Paul's saying. I want you to have this spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And he's not just saying, I want you to have some power of revelation that, that you can sit around and pray and that you're going to have these visions. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a specific revelation of who Jesus Christ is. I want you to know this. I'm here in prison. I may never see you again. I want you to know this. And he's saying in a way that if you really don't know this, you need to ask yourself the question, do I really have the Spirit? And again, when I say no, it's not just you have the information. When I say, do you know this from a biblical Christian perspective, when you know something about Jesus, it is changing who you are. Do you know Jesus that way? If you don't, if it's just information that you collect, you have to ask yourself, do I have the Spirit? And if I don't have the Spirit, did I really have faith? If you don't know, there's no Spirit. And if you look at what he says, he says, that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And I love this word, inheritance, and later on it's gonna talk about how, how we're joint heirs with Jesus. And if you remember, we, we talked about, when we were talking in Joshua, that when most people think of inheritance, they think of stuff. You know, they think of, um, you know, money that's left for you or a house or a car or something. My mom used to joke about this, but actually, turns out she wasn't joking, okay? My mom was a hoarder. 
she loved stuff. And when we were living in the Parsonage in Ever Beach, I mean, as one of us moved out, she would fill it up with stuff, right? <clears throat> if you're a psychoanalyst, you probably can figure out what was going on. I don't know. I just knew we'd come back and visit and like, you know, we couldn't find anything. And even my mom, my mom was only like this big, so it's hard to find her in the house. Um, but she'd do that. And we'd be like, Mom, why do you have all this stuff? And she would always tell us, it's your inheritance. <laughs> That's what she would tell us. And in a weird way, it became our inheritance from her. Because my parents, they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have any money at all. But here's what happened, okay? My mom just died unexpectedly. And so we all are living on the mainland, and we fly here. Our, my, all my brothers, my sisters, were here. And here's what happened. My dad couldn't live on his own, so we had to get the house ready. And so what happened? was our whole family together went through her stuff. Most of it to throw away. Part of it searching for the only two things she had of value, which she hid, and told my wife she hid it, but then forgot where she hid it. Um, so we had to look through every little thing. But do you know what the inheritance was? It was the doing of that. It wasn't the stuff, the stuff was, World, you know, world's value was worthless. It was the fact that all her kids were together in one place. All the grandkids, the spouses, we were together in one place doing something together. And I'll tell you, it's the last time my family has been together since, well, it was one more time when my dad died. But to spend a, like three, four, five days together, it hadn't happened for 20 years before that, and it hasn't happened since. Remember with Joshua, the inheritance wasn't the land. It wasn't stuff when it came to Caleb. This is how God honors his people. When he gives you an inheritance, he doesn't give you stuff. He gives you a job. He gives you something to do because he knows he created you and he created you with a sense of purpose. You want to have purpose. You don't just want to sit on a cloud for all eternity. All eternity. That you don't want to just be, you know, for lack of a better term, an eternal couch potato because that's the vision a lot of people have of heaven is that we're couch potatoes for the rest of our lives. Younger people, if you don't know what couch potato is, look it up on the internet. I know it's an old phrase. The inheritance is that we're given something to do. 80-year-old Caleb, my inheritance is I get to go attack one more city. I get to go fight more battles. That's my inheritance. So opposite of what our culture says. Our culture says you, you live your life so you can deserve to just, just, just rest for the last 20, 30 years of your life. And it's so good when I see, you know, so many of you as being the opposite of that. You're not just resting the last 20, 30 years of your life. You're serving. You're ministering. 
this inheritance to the saints. He, he wants us to know this. And then he wants us to know who Jesus is. And this only, again, comes from the Spirit. And in verse 20, he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. We need to know that Jesus is the risen Lord. He wasn't just a great man and a great teacher. He is the resurrected Lord. And as resurrected, he wasn't like Lazarus who was resurrected and then later died. He's forever resurrected. He didn't conquer death just for a time. He conquered death for all time. He's our risen Lord. He didn't, he didn't dig his way out of the grave. He burst out of the grave. This, this is our Jesus. This is our Lord. This is where we're told, you, those of you who trust in Jesus Christ, that same resurrection power is available to you. What are you doing with it? You know, it would be kind of like if someone gave you like a brand new car. And so they give you a brand new car and they tell you how's the car and they say, oh, it's great, it's awesome, love it. You know, and they tell, oh yeah, it's really good, I'm glad you like it. And then they come visit you. And what you've done with the car is, is you've used the back seat for storage and you use the front seat to put your plants. And the person's like, thought you liked the car. Oh, I do. It is awesome. Look how much storage space there is. Look, it's perfect for my plants. I can turn the air conditioning on, you know, gives them a little air, turn some music, because, you know, plants like music. It's great. It's a great, it's a great car. We'd think, like, something wrong with that. Well, if you've been granted the resurrection power. What are we using it for? Verse 20 and 21 tell us he's not just the risen Lord. It tells us that he was seated, he has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's not just the risen Lord, he is the exalted Lord. He is the one who's high and lifted up. He's above all things. His name is above every name. When the Bible talks about name, it's talking about power and it's talking about authority. And it's saying he has power and authority over every other thing, every other creature. This is who he is our exalted Lord. And then it says in verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, Paul is saying the Spirit is going to help you understand that this, that this Jesus who walked this earth He's not just the risen Lord. He's not just the exalted Lord. He is the Lord of all creation. There is not one atom outside creation 
that is not under his lordship. There's not one particle. It's all under his lordship. He's the Lord of all creation. Yes, in verse 22, it also says, he's the head of the church. But don't get the bigger picture first. He's the Lord of all creation. And yeah, then it says, he's the head of the church. Head of the church, so he's supposed to be our leader. He's supposed to be the one who holds us together. And I keep coming back to this question, so what are we doing with this leader? What are we doing with this Jesus? William Carey once said something. Um, He said, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. And William Carey, who some of you might not know, but he's, he's often called the, the father of the modern missionary movement. He was the one that was in, in, in Scotland and, and he, he wanted to start mission work in India. And, and the pastors that were there with him, they would tell him, you know what, if God wants to, wants to save the people in India, he'll raise up a church there without our help. He doesn't need our help. But William Carey kept going back again and again. And William Carey was just, he wasn't considered a great like, speaker. He didn't come from like this long Baptist pastor pedigree. He didn't have the greatest education. But he had this, this deep desire to attempt great things for God. And he was relentless. Every time they got together, he would bring it up. Till finally they said, almost it seems like, like he didn't convince them, but they were tired of hearing from him. Okay, you can go. And he goes to India. And there he spends seven years. Seven years before he sees one convert to Christianity. Most of us would have given up after seven days, maybe seven weeks. In a day and age when we measure the success of a church by how many baptisms they have or how many people are in the church or how much money is coming in, we would have, we would have pulled William Carey back so fast. He's just wasting his time in India. But he stayed. And it came at a high price. His wife kind of went insane. He lost all his children. It wasn't easy, but he stayed. He stayed. And, and if you know the things that, that today still influenced William, that William Carey's influence on that, that culture to today, it's amazing. He helped, helped bring the language, make it into written language could be, tr- could be translated, the Bible could be translated. He, he saw this, this practice that was happening 
in that culture, and it still happens today, but he was able to work to get it to be illegal, where, where if, if, a, if a man died, his, his wife would be, would be burned along with the man at, it, at his funeral. And it was particularly tragic because oftentimes these are arranged marriages where the man was much older and, and the young woman might have just been 14, 15 years old. He fought against it. There's still colleges, there's still hospitals that bear William Carey's name. I'm not as smooth and articulate as William Carey. So I can't come up with great phrases like attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. You got that one. I can say stuff like think humongous. Right? Think humongous. Think that God wants to do with Wildlife Baptist Church that something that's as big as he is, that's humongous. And then do the small things every day. Every day, do the small things that matter. But always think huge. Always think as those who are led by this exalted, resurrected Lord of all creation. And in those verses, 22 and 23, it gives us a hint of what this great mystery is that we're going to get to. And it's that Jesus came to make everything new and make everything united. You see, when things are going to be subjected to him, That sounds like he's just going to be like this domineering Lord. But then if you look, it says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills in all. He's come to make things new. He's come to fill the church. To fill the church with his presence. That's why every time I have a thought that's not Christ-like, I'm pushing back that feeling. Every time I have an attitude towards someone or I feel like I just don't want to forgive them or I don't want to reconcile, it's pushing back. Christ wants to fill the church. When he fills the church, the church is not united because we're all good people who get along. It's united because he is the one holding us together. That's what we saw back in Colossians, where it says in verse, chapter 1, verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, or earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. He came to make things new. He came to unite all things. And he wants to begin with the church. He wants to make us new. He wants us to to be the church that it's not just doing new things, singing new songs, wearing new clothes. Making us new in the sense that every day we're becoming more and more like him. Every day we're having a deeper and deeper understanding of who he is. Every day our love for him and our love for each other is growing. 
He wants to make all things new. It's not a mystery in that sense. But it's a mystery to us, and how can that happen? How can God take people like us and unite us in such a way that we have this unconditional love for one another, that we will walk together no matter what the world throws at us, that we will forge ahead no matter if he tells us to go up the mountain or he tells us to go into the sea. We will do it and we will do it together. We might go, how are you going to do that, God? I don't know. I can tell you like, oh, here's what this book says and what these other churches do and all these programs. But all the Bible tells us is that if we believe in Jesus Christ and if we've been made new by his spirit and if we're living, trying to live faithful to him and we're working towards one another with one another and we're always work towards reconciliation and we always look to make ourselves healthier and to grow healthier as a church, he says it'll happen. But as soon as we become entrenched, as soon as we say, I've gone far enough, I don't need to go any farther, I've changed enough, I can't change anymore, I've, I've become too loving, this is the most loving I can possibly be, I love too many people, I can't love anymore, I forgive too many people, I can't forgive one more, as soon as we get to that point, as soon as we get to, this is the way church should be, this is what I believe it should be, and this is what I want it to be, and it can never be anything different can't move. We can't grow. It's when we live as this diverse body, united by Christ. When we do that, this is what we're doing. We're giving the world a glimpse, a glimpse of what Jesus came to do. What he really came to do a lot of people think what Jesus came to do was simply to collect souls. Collect souls and get them off this, this, this ship called Mother Earth that's, that's going to be you know, end in disaster. It's going to crash. And he's trying to collect as many as he can and get them on his spaceship and get them out of here. That's people's view of what Christianity is. That that's all Jesus came to do was to collect individual souls. And if it's not the crashing spaceship, it's simply the, 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 the idea that he came to help you have a good life. And Jesus does save us in both of those ways. But what he really came to do, what he really came to do was to do that most important work through his life, death, and resurrection so that he might make all things new. That he might empower his church to be a part of making all things new. That's what he really came to do. When you're, when you're signing up to become a Christian, you're not jumping on a ship to go get away from the disaster. No, you're getting on a ship that goes right into the heart of the disaster. You understand that? Christianity is not an escape. It is saying, no, I'm going right 
into the disaster with Jesus Christ as my head. I'm going to do whatever he directs me to do. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. He's doing a great thing. If we're going to be his followers, we have to do great things too. Or at least try. And we trust. We trust that his spirit will come and help us to do as he directs. And you might go, well, you know, I just don't think I'm ready. I, you know, those great things, you know, I just, I'm not ready. You know my advice to you? Get ready. That's what being a disciple is. It's getting ready. That's what it means when it says we need to grow in our faith and we need to learn. It's to get ready. But we can't spend all our lives getting ready. At some point, we need to attempt great things for God. What Jesus really came to do, much more than a janitor who makes $8 million, much more than what most of us think. Let's not be intimidated by the greatness of God's plan, but let's be encouraged that he chose to use us in helping to accomplish it.